listening to Awake in Relationship, a podcast about intimacy, community, and culture in a time of great change, with Silas Rose. Greetings, dear listener. My name is Silas Rose, and this is Awakening Relationship. The opioid crisis has been in the news a lot lately, and for good reason. Here in uh, British Columbia, we just passed a, a grim milestone. It's been seven years since the provincial government declared a, a public health emergency around addictions and mental health, and since that time, over 11,000 people from all walks of life, have lost their lives due to uh, the toxic drug supply. It's a, a complex problem and, in some sense, a, a symptom of deeper issues within our society. But I think it's fair to say that uh, for all levels of government, this has been an unmitigated disaster and failure of policy. You don't have to walk far in a downtown of any city in North America to really see evidence of the human misery resulting from an epidemic of mental health and addictions. You might also notice that a lot of the people struggling and acting out on the streets are, are men. Seven out of ten deaths uh, due to overdose or deaths of despair, including suicide, are men. Again, the reasons for this are, are complex, and some of those we, we kind of dive into in this interview. But it's fair to say that men and boys are struggling to adapt to a changing world and changing social norms. In almost every metric of success that matters, women are really surpassing men. And that includes education, career advancement, and income potential. This isn't to suggest that the patriarchy has somehow been magically dismantled. Of course not. There are still plenty of examples of inequality and violence towards women in society. But things are trending up. Just like women, men are not a, a homogeneous group. So I can only really speak to my own experience and perhaps the experience of the men I grew up with in the 1980s and 1990s. In general, many of us rejected the traditional man box, which is a sociological term defining a, a set of behaviors and expectations around masculinity. This might include a proclivity towards dominance and aggression, maybe even violence, but also physical and mental toughness, a, a stoicism, the sense of self-sufficiency, which seems to make it really tough for men to access help, especially emotional realms. So uh, educated men of my generation really didn't want to become part of the problem of patriarchy. We didn't want to become like our fathers, who might have fallen into the uh, macho jerk category or, or were perhaps emotionally unavailable or absent. The problem is we didn't really have a clear vision of what uh, generative masculinity might look like. We also didn't have uh, positive examples of men to follow in our culture. 
Just watch any action flick from the 1990s. You'll know what I'm talking about. Men seem to be good at blowing shit up, but not much else. As developing young men, we became meek and agreeable nice guys, which at the time was affectionately referred to as a uh, sensitive new age guy or a snag. This new presentation of masculinity was certainly more safe, but also lacking fire. The positive sense of passion, drive, and purpose add to the mixed digital media, things like uh, video games and social media pornography. It's no wonder that uh, men and boys are struggling to find their stride. So I thought I'd invite a friend, David Jurassic, a psychotherapist and men's coach, to have a conversation about the uh, state of the masculine principle outside the man box. In this interview, we talk about some of the often overlooked causes of bad male behavior, underperformance, and in particular, why it's so hard for men to access help when they most need it. We also talk about how conscious men, maybe that's you or someone you love, can reaccess some of that fire, the dynamic power within the biology and psyche of men in a healthy way that serves others and deepens a sense of love and purpose. I hope you enjoy. Well, David, uh, welcome to the show. Hi, Silas. <clears throat> Thank you for having me. Yeah. Let's start with your background. I was reading on your website that uh, you are actually a child refugee, is that correct? Yeah, you know, I, I was just uh, in a men's group this morning, and um, we were all reflecting on grief. Mm. And um, some of us with specific grief going through our marriages or our health crises, and I have grief that's come up recently around seeing the state of the world. Um, so many people dying on the way to get to safety, you know? Um it brings me back to when I was a, as a child running away from Eastern Europe as a mm. refugee with my parents and how grateful I am that uh, we got to safe harbor. So where, where was home originally? Originally, we came from Czechoslovakia, which mm. now is Czech Republic and Slovakia. And we uh, escaped through Yugoslavia, which doesn't exist anymore. And uh, we were refugees in Austria. For a year and then we got accepted into canada hmm. yeah. how old were you how old were you then i was seven years old mm. uh old enough to kind of grasp what was going on and uh and still for it to be surreal you know like mm. what's, what's happening around me and yeah hmm yeah I'm, I'm curious about the through line to the kind of work you're doing now especially as a a psychotherapist and, uh, you know, a sensei and you, you wear a lot of hats. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Yeah. I think well, what I've discovered, uh, because we moved about 35 times in my life so far, 36 times actually with this house. So I had to really like uproot myself and find new soil many times many different cities, different schools, different 
jobs, workplaces. And um, there's something in, ingrained in my spirit about community uh, and about finding a sense of home when you don't have a physical place. So that that's that's a big theme of my life, and um, as I get older, I'm trying to weave all the threads and bring all the hats together. Um, so I'm slowly retiring as a therapist, so I can work primarily in community, uh, being a mentor, because mm. that, that way I, that allows me to bring all of myself to my work. Mm. What initially got you interested, in particular, in men's work? I think in my 20s, I felt really lost. And I was training as a therapist, bless you, at one point, And I realized that therapy wasn't enough. Mm. I needed initiation. I needed a rite of passage. I needed mentors. I needed, uh, when I first joined a men's group, which at the time was Mankind Project, which is a really great organization that I'm still a part of and I treasure. Um, it taught me stuff that I didn't learn anywhere about integrity, accountability, taking ownership, uh, speaking with authority and authenticity. You know, I didn't get that from therapy. I didn't get that from school. I didn't get that from sports or, or anywhere else. So, um, yeah, since my twenties, I was, I was longing for it. It was missing in my life. And, uh, I've been fortunate enough to be part of many men's groups since then. One of the reasons I wanted to invite you onto the show, because men's work has been kind of important in my life as well for, mm -hmm. I would say, you know, probably 10 years. And a lot of that was really about trying to resolve what, I, what might be called the father wound. Mm -hmm. That um, myself and I'm sure a lot of men listening uh, might be able to relate to this that for whatever reason, whether our, our parent, our father wasn't up to the task or was absent, there was this kind of interruption mm -hmm. uh, of a sense of transference. And because of that, you know, I really felt like, particularly in my 20s, uh, a great sense of anger and resentment, yeah. not only towards my father, but the world. Mm -hmm. So, I want to kind of explore, like, what is that missing transference? Yeah, a friend of mine, Michael McCarthy, has put it really well recently. And I think we're longing not just for, uh, like, our biological or physical father to father us, um, affirm us, love us in a certain way, you know, challenge us in a certain way, but we're also longing for a, a sacred kind of, father just like we're longing for mother nature or a greater mother you know i think there's just an innate instinct in us as boys to seek model and to seek a greater authority greater authority than ourselves as we try to make sense of ourselves our boundaries our limits of who we are we want to push against the universe and uh we're looking for where the edges are and i think our fathers are often, often haven't grown up emotionally, psychologically. They stepped up to um, maybe take care of us financially or, you know, 
um, be there for us in some ways. But a lot of fathers that I know, and I've worked with families for 25 years, the men are particularly um, haven't grown up. They're still boys in a father's skin. And so when we are raised that way, it's it's really confusing. And it leaves us with longing and anger, right? When my dad lost his temper with me, he would beat me and my brother. I mean, that was not an adult that I could trust or rely on or, you know, that was that was someone out of control who whose own little child was a, out of control. It taught me to be afraid. It taught me to be angry. Um, so I, when we kind of come into the world and we're parented that way, then we seek we seek better role models, you know, or different role models. Sometimes we just re- reactive. My dad was to this, so I'm looking for the opposite in the world, you know, just to find balance somewhere. Um. Or we look to the mother to meet us in all the ways that she can. And then we we are disappointed. So I think, you know, you're speaking to this wound that I think all men have to some degree. And, and some of it is tragic. And I think we could do a better job of raising human beings to be more mature adults and better, better humans. But I think some of it is just developmental, just no matter how wonderful your parents are, there's going to be ways they break your heart and they disappoint you and they don't give you enough. And we need to go out into the world searching for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think that that's evidenced everywhere that I think there, there's just so much, so much walking wounded, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, for both men and women, but I, I'm really... Noticing that, particularly, uh, say when it comes to the opioid crisis mm-hmm. uh, on our streets, you know, I think it's three out of four uh, people who die, uh, you know, out of despair, and that can be suicide or overdose or men. I guess what I want to explore with you some of the attributes um, or conditions that that are exacerbating that wound. And in particular, why men find it so hard to uh, to get help, uh, emotional support, or maybe it's a, a problem of accepting that help. I think there's many ways to talk about it. Uh, what I found talking to many boys and men, boys, teenagers, and men of all ages, is uh, I like to call it the lone wolf. Uh, you know, this is part of us that gets wounded at home, and then we go out into the peer group and we get wounded in the pack. We get socially wounded because we're more sensitive or because we're just more honest. We get ostracized, shamed, humiliated, rejected, put down. And so the the most natural instinct is to protect ourselves and to become a lone wolf. And then we go about our old lives being a lone wolf. Even when we, if we get married, we have kids, or even when we belong to a soccer team or go to a workplace, we, we kind of know instinctively we're not safe. Mm. 
we have we have only ourselves we can count on and and that's and you know we don't even get to know ourselves mm-hmm. so the the lone wolf doesn't heal himself he doesn't uh take care of himself very well he just survives and it's literally like in the wild lone wolves die much younger and they die of disease and loneliness and hunger right and it's the same for men i'd say there's an epidemic of lone wolves and sometimes it's it's kind of hidden sometimes you see a man who's gregarious friendly uh very generous with others but he has no one he can talk to he has no one he he doesn't even know how to talk to them even if he had them because he spent so many decades burying his own feelings his own inner child that uh, he doesn't even have the language anymore and so he's you know we can have certain masks or ways we show up in the world but the lone wolf to me is the uh, that's what men say that's how men describe it I have to do this alone. I have to be alone. I have to figure out on my own. Uh, my marriage is falling apart. I just have to read more books. I have to figure out what what happened. What did I do wrong? How do I fix it? Everything is centered around the the I, the the individual alone in space. Um, and sometimes even like coaching and therapy reinforces that. You know, coaching. Well, coaching I find. I'm going to make generalizations here, right? Because there's a lot of wonderful coaches and wonderful therapists. But I'd say there's a shadow in both fields where coaching talks a lot about mindset and action and strategy. And if you just fig- you just tweak your mindset, if you just figure out the right strategy, if you just take the right action, you'll be fine. You'll succeed. Uh, it doesn't talk about relationship. It doesn't talk about partnership. It doesn't talk enough about how you need a village to raise any one of us. Uh, therapy is also very cloistered, right? It's like you and the therapist. They can be wonderful. They can care, care about you, mentor you, help you heal and grow. Um, but it's this very private relationship that you, you I've seen men who like, have serious conditions and problems and they go to a therapist as a lifeline it keeps them going but they have no one else in the world they can talk to mm. i see the tragedy of that mm. and there are some therapists i'd say some social workers and systemic therapists who see the problem there and and see half of our job as therapists is to help men develop roots in the world and robust social structure and encourage them to join men's groups and communities where they can they can be themselves and be really uh, part of a fabric. What are some of the uh, common threads you're seeing and or challenges uh, you're witnessing in the men you're working with right now? Oh, I'd say for me, I, I tend to work pretty uh, pretty integratively and. The men who seek me out at this stage are looking for something deeper. Hmm. So they've gone to therapy, they've gone to couples work, they've done retreats and ayahuasca and plant medicine. They've done a lot, lots of stuff. And then they get to this place where that's not enough. Maybe they're still struggling with an addiction to porn or alcohol or something or work. 
Uh, maybe they're very smart and they've got all these tools, but they're still struggling in their relationships, you know, or with, with some core shame and their sense of confidence in the world, who they are. Uh, and they seek me out because I have a relational approach or paradigm and I work in community as a mentor more and more than a therapist. And so they have this instinct that maybe they're, maybe I need something more comprehensive and something that takes me deeper than where I've been able to go thus far. So they come in with all different kinds of problems, but the men that I find are most ready to grow are men who start to see that it's not about one thing. It's not about my sleep or my marriage or my, you know, pot use or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's how they're relating to everything that they start to see. Okay. There's something going on and they resist blaming themselves and blaming others. And they're seeking something deeper, deeper understanding of what's, what's going on and how can I grow at this stage of life? You know, how does uh, accountability fit into that? Well, accountability is a funny thing. It's used in men's culture a lot in the last 20 years. Uh, some men use it as a as a cudgel to beat themselves with, you know, uh, or use it as a source of pride. Well, I take responsibility. I take accountability. Why don't you? Or if only I was more accountable and I kept my word, then I wouldn't make these mistakes and I would, you know, they kind of beat themselves up about it. I started to think about accountability as a much more ecological interdependent process. My wife and I garden and grow a lot of our own food and medicine. And nature has its own accountability. There's a time to plant seeds. And if you miss that window, you're going to go hungry. And there's weeds that are strangling your fruit. And if you don't tend to them, harvest them in some way, they're going to they're going to take over. There's a time to compost and let things die, you know. Um, so I'm thinking more these days in accountability in that way. And, and I'm seeing the power of social accountability where men speak to each other about their, their longings, their mission, their vision, what they're trying to do. And uh, we can support each other with compassion. Hmm. That tends to work really well. Uh, the old model was to shame each other, you know, or or not to get into it at all. Hmm. The old conditioning for men is, oh, well, that's not my business. Good luck with that. Or in men's groups in the past, I've seen it would be like leaning in and telling each other what to do. Hmm. You just have that's, to try harder, you know. Yeah. That's an interesting segue to my, my next question, which relates to this notion of toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. which, interesting enough, was, was really a, a term coined by the mythopoetic men's movement, started by Robert Bly, to essentially describe the wounded masculine. What do you feel the impact of that term has been, I think now is used more as kind of a catch-all uh, for everything that men are doing wrong, <laughs> right. or bad behavior, and, and so there's a lot of examples of that out there, I'm not denying that. But what has been the, the impact of that, that term in terms of self-perception, particularly for developing boys and young men? Well, I, I think you're right in the sense of that it can be used as a weapon, that term, and it can be mis misattributed. 
and uh, I get I get pretty annoyed by how men unpack that without actually you know it's the same thing about racism right now critical race theory if you actually read two sentences and find out what the what that's actually about you probably would agree with it but if you react to what somebody else told you it's about somebody else is trying to use it to divide you and other people then you're going to get very angry and defensive and i think the same thing with toxic masculinity if you actually unpack it I'd say uh, 99 out of 100 guys would say, yeah, that that's true. That's happening. I'm, I've been infected by it. I've suffered because of it. And it's ruining my marriage or it's ruined my relationship with my brother or sister or father or mother. I think men know, um, but we're in a very polarized, somewhat toxic environment where even the truth can be weaponized, you know, turned against us. So I, I don't like shying away from that term and trying to find a friendlier term. I think it's a it's an accurate description of a condition, but I don't lead with it myself because men already come in with a lot of baggage. You know, they come in with a lot of ideas. They listen to uh, Jordan Peterson or somebody online who fills them up with one side of a story, and they come in really defensive and. I, frankly, I think they carry a lot of shame, and that shame gets externalized as anger, as defensiveness, and so I don't throw that term out right mm. at the beginning. You know, I sort of men find it find their own ways to say the same thing. I don't want to make any kind of generalizations about the state of men. I can only kind of speak to my own experience growing up, and I I grew up in the sort of came of age in the nineties. I like a lot of my friends, male friends. You know, I think we're very well-intentioned, that we really didn't want to be continue to be part of the problem. So in essence, we kind of toned things down in, in such a way that we became almost kind of gender neutral, mm-hmm. and we rejected the kind of hyper-masculinity of our fathers and became adopted something that was maybe more safe. The problem I see with that in my own life and, and what I've sort of witnessed maybe in others, in the process of rejecting... Uh, all those kind of stereotypical qualities that might be defined as uh, the man box for a set of expectations that boys and men are, are meant to kind of conform to to become real men. That in rejecting that, I was somehow kind of cut off from a really positive source of energy. Right. And the result of that was kind of crippling to my sense of confidence and agency in the world. And it's taken me a lot of time and therapy and meeting with men and, you know, meditation, everything else I'm doing in terms of self-care to kind of recapture a healthy mm-hmm. sense of confidence. Absolutely. I, I, I had the same journey. And I think, I think when we don't know better, we throw the whole baby out with the bathwater, right? Because our primitive emotional brain doesn't distinguish or differentiate very well. It just says, well, I've seen men be really terrible. I've seen people speak about manhood in a way that feels toxic and gross. I don't want any part of that. But I'm a boy. I'm a man. Well, I, oh, I'm a human being. I'm spiritual. I find some way to bypass. Um, there's nothing safe about being a man in this world. There's nothing safe about being a woman or transgendered or any anybody. Nobody is safe in this world. Um. But we we try to sort of learn ways to mitigate risk, I guess, right, and hide 
Uh, so I did the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And tried to adopt qualities more that I saw in my mother. Uh, but yeah, it left me with a lot of shame around my gender and, um, and not knowing how to fight, how to, how to assert, uh, not knowing where the line was until I had actual role models, men who are human beings who are gendered as men showing me what it looks like to be compassionate and fierce, to be strong and sensitive, to be powerful and loving to like, they can, you can do that. I didn't know that was possible till I actually saw it and wit and experienced it firsthand, you know? Mm. What's that? What's that? Um, through uh, Aikido, it was through Aikido. It was through Mankind Project (MKP). It was through a few mentors I had that just broke the whole mold for me. Hmm. And said, so, "Wow, you can cry with me one minute, and the next minute look me in the eye and confront me and push me to my edge, and you, you, I feel, I feel safe w enough with you." that allows me to grow wow i didn't have that growing up i didn't have anyone in my life that could do that it was like a superpower you know and it made me hungry for like i want to be like that guy holy shit i want to i want to have that kind of courage uh and that kind of vulnerability there's something so powerful about it hmm. how do i get there right and then there's different pathways yeah hmm well, that's that's what I'm wondering about. If if martial arts is is has been kind of, or could be, a real access point uh, for men wanting to train in that kind of, uh, I don't know how you call it, like generative form of, of masculinity. Yeah. So, I would say, like anything, it's about the culture and the consciousness of the people. So you can go. You know, Aikido is framed as a peaceful martial art. You can find Aikido dojos that are toxic, that have like real assholes running them. Um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is framed as a very tough, you know, street form. You can find dojos where there's a lot of love and there's a lot of consciousness in that dojo. So I always recommend to men or anyone interested to actually go to different dojos if you feel any inclination any curiosity to go to those dojos and actually feel what it's like to be part of that culture take a class or two see what it's like to be around that sensei that teacher do you feel like you have permission to be yourself fully uh and if they're just too stoic and rigid or if they're too soft and mushy you go somewhere else keep looking till you find that place where this is a place where you can grow so it's not always the the martial art or what the logo is or what the motto is. It's the it's the people like the, that have the integrity that hold up the space, right? Um, I found several incredible martial arts schools um, that were really shaped who I've become, and I've also found ones that looked really beautiful, and then they were not not great places to be, you know. Um, I think that's the same with any, you know, meditation groups, with uh, creative communities, with anything, right? There's a promise there. There's a potential there. But um, 
we have to we have to take the risk to get in there and experience it. I definitely get a sense that you're pointing men towards something like that positive vision of masculinity. I'm wondering how it's possible to transmit that to younger generations. Like I'm I'm just thinking of the parents mm. in this audience. How do you communicate that to, to young people, to kids? Well, first I don't I don't actually um believe in positivity at all. I believe in paradox. I think when we chase positivity, we we cause a lot of harm. You know, with parenting particularly, right? When we try to get our kids to be patient or kind or whatever, we can be really destructive. We can be really shaming. Uh, but if we live in paradox um, with our kids, you know, like let's say I, I want my kid to be more patient, right? Or more considerate of other human beings. Well, they're more self-absorbed. Okay. Um, most parents will get annoyed and at some point will sit down the kid and lecture them and be ashamed of them. And, well, how dare you? What, why did you do that? Why didn't you do this? And then the kid just learns the worst lesson, right? And they just look at us like we're hypocrites too, because we are. Um, so what I find more powerful, and this comes from Aikido, the practice of Aikido is uh, one of the things that I translate into relationships immediately from Aikido is when someone comes to attack you, grab you, seize you, or do something to you that you don't necessarily want, the best thing to do is not try to run away or block, but to blend with it, to absorb the energy. And so when I work with parents, I encourage them to uh, be authentic with their kid and use the energy of the moment that's between them, the conflict that's between them. So if my kid embarrasses me, uh, how about I own that? How about I own that? Hey, you know, I have a value of generosity and you're acting in a way that I feel really embarrassed about. And I want to control you and I want to tell you what to do and I want to put you in your place. But really what's happening is I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I don't know what to do. I feel out of control right now. Right there, I'm teaching empathy, right? I'm teaching authenticity. And I'm encouraging my, my, son or daughter to step into that with me i'm making space for them uh that tends to be something that most parents kind of sigh and go oh finally because there's a lot of positive parenting bullshit out there where experts will go into detail about what parents should do in this and that situation and then it sets up so much failure parents you know read all the books buy into all of it it sounds beautiful and then they get angry, sad, scared, hurt themselves, and they do the opposite, and they feel terrible. And it's just this vicious cycle. So I encourage parents to be authentic and to study what it means to be a, a decent human being with their kid. They're still the adult. They still make decisions, set limits, you know, steer the course at times. But um, you know, as kids get older too, you lose any semblance of control anyway you never had it when they were little you could hold them and swaddle them but as soon as they could walk they could run away and as soon as they have enough ideas in their head they could tell you where to stick it so you only really have a relationship if you want to influence your your kid right 
or your kids. And so for me, that's, that's the response I give. And then there's just paradox. We're in paradox all the time. Well, it's good to be generous and caring, but you know, we also need to learn where to draw a line because there are people who will take advantage of us. So there is no do this and do, don't do that. There's actually learning about discernment, learning how to be generous with people who are not generous, right? Learning how to be a certain way in difficult situations. My biggest hope for my daughter is that she grows up learning to wrestle with paradoxes and real life. Not that she tries to be some goody goody, uh, who emulates some image that her parents gave her, you know? The early men's movement really kind of grew out of, I, I might say, a, a reaction to a uh, second wave feminism and, and the, the perceived loss uh, of power for men. Mm-hmm. How has men's work evolved over the last 40 years or not evolved? Well, I, I'm only 46, so I wasn't there in the 70s. I was this kid, but... I actually was very inspired by the early men's movement, the mythopoetic movement. It made a huge impact on me in my teens and 20s. It made me seek out men's work, planted the seed. And I think there was a lot of, like anything, there was a lot of different threads to it. But the main um, people doing it and holding it, I think they brought a lot of good stuff into the world for men. And then I think what happened is it got put to sleep. It got it got forgotten, and then decades later, because of Me Too, primarily because I've been around in men's work for almost twenty five years, it was pretty small. It was pretty underground. Only in the last, I'd say, ten years, with Me Too coming up, it has it sort of mushroomed into this big thing that people actually are aware it exists. People are looking for it. You know, there's it's in the zeitgeist the men's consciousness, there's more podcasts, there's more talk about it. There's just hundreds of groups, whereas like 15 years ago, there were maybe three or four. Now there's hundreds. Um, I think there's there's goodness in that, but I think we have to be more discerning. You know, just like mindfulness or yoga becoming popular is wonderful in one way, but then there's a lot of uh, McDonald's version of it. There's a lot of there's a few people doing it in a way that's harmful and it's very seductive because the need is there because people can make money off of it because it can make some people feel important to represent it. You know, um, I'd say it's an interesting time where there's a lot of diverse options on the table for men. When I was in my twenties, uh, feeling that wound, that father wound, I really, thankfully, sought out male mentors, mm-hmm. essentially kind of surrogate father figures uh, for guidance. So I'm a real believer in uh, in the role of mentorship, uh, and that's a big part of your work. Mm-hmm. What is what is what is your approach? To mentoring men and, and how is that different fundamentally different from therapy yeah thanks for asking that silas i i get 
asked that all the time, especially because men come to see me and they think they're looking for a therapist or they think they're looking for something. And then we meet and um, I'm big on vetting people. You know, I don't just uh, work with somebody because. So I spend time with people getting to know them, uh, sniffing them out, letting them sniff me out. And then I decide if I want to step into something with them. Um, <laughs> my best way to describe it, and I, I like to contrast mentoring with coaching and therapy, because those are the sort of coaching and therapy are what's known. And mentoring is something that's uh, still not very known. And if it, if, if it happens, it happens by accident or people just sort of, but in my community, we're pioneering a type of mentoring. Our community is called powerful and loving. It's about holding that paradox that Martin Luther King um, proposed decades ago uh, about being both powerful and loving and one without the other is, is not enough. Um, we're pioneering a type of, way of being a mentor that to me is is deeper than coaching and is more lasting than therapy and what i mean by that is that like what i said earlier about coaching is tends to be head-based you know mindset strategy action that's wonderful and that works in my experience with small maybe medium-sized problems that can be solved mentally and can be actioned on business issues you know um getting tasks done it's completely inadequate when it comes to big life stuff uh, in my view it doesn't matter how much visioning you do how much mindset work you do um life is messy it's complex and it grabs you by the balls and the guts and the heart and everything right therapy tends to have some tools that that get into the trauma, the healing, the depth of it. But remember, only the last 10 years did therapy become embodied. Therapy for 100 years used to be just talking about our stuff for decades and trying to get intellectually insightful about it. It's only been in the last decade where we started to understand the nervous system, the body. And therapy is still an insulated experience. You pay someone in a narrow way to see them for a narrow bit of time um you don't relate to them outside of that right and there's sometimes there's good reason for that but sometimes i think not and so what we're doing is we're pioneering a way of being mentors where we're dealing with the whole man the the mind body heart soul and we don't work in isolation i have a uh nine mentors who i supervise with so i bring in they support me to support the men that i work with i work more and more in groups as a mentor and one-on-one -on -one together so they get me one-on-one -on -one, but they also get access to other mentors um, we have a five element model so we're trying to cover all the terrain um because you know you don't you don't come when you need to grow in your life you don't just sort of want to take care of one little piece there you want the person to understand you as a whole right so i think of mentoring in that way and, and i think of when i take on to be someone's mentor i think of it as a lifelong they might they might just walk with me for a few months or a year or two but i decide if i'm going to mentor someone i'm going to care about them for the rest of my life
that's what I take on. Um, I, uh, you know, I take that to really personally and to heart. So I'm pretty selective about who I mentor. Yeah. Well, David, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. I hope to get you back to uh, continue in some form. How, yeah. how can uh, uh, people learn more about your work? Yeah, you can find me and our community at powerfulandloving.com. And uh, there's lots of ways you can access us. We um, have a, written a novel about one man's experience of men's work, relational men's work. And uh, you can find out about different events that we do and um, reach out to me personally if you, if you wish, if you feel called. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm a real believer in men's work when it's done right. So it's so wonderful to have this conversation with David. I feel like we just uh, scratched the surface. So I hope to have him back soon. If you want to learn more about David's work, head over to integritytherapy.org or powerfulandloving.com. I'll put some notes along with the transcripts of this interview up on my website at awakenrelationship.com. You might have noticed I don't really spend a lot of time on social media, so the show really has grown through word of mouth. If you found this episode helpful, and you think it might resonate with someone else, a good friend, I'd appreciate if you sent it along. I'd also really appreciate it if you took a moment and left a quick review on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any feedback or perhaps suggestions for future guests, send me a note through the contact page of the website or reach out to me on uh, Instagram or LinkedIn. I finally got rid of Twitter. It's so wonderful to hear from my audience. Thanks so much, dear listener, for tuning in. Till next time, stay connected. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Awake in Relationship. If you liked what you heard, please click subscribe to get the latest show delivered fresh to your device or sign up for our newsletter at awakeinrelationship.com. Sharing is caring. Thank you.